You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Ed Harrison here for Real Vision. I am talking to Matt Kadner, a portfolio manager at GMO. He's also a senior member of their asset allocation team. Matt, welcome to Real Vision. Thanks, Ed. Great to be with you. You know, you are the third person from GMO who we've spoken to over the last year. Uh, we spoke to Jeremy Grantham. I spoke to uh, Ben Inker and now have the pleasure of speaking to you. Uh, uh, your company, has a storied history of really getting markets right, particularly the uh, the internet bubble. And also, I would say that you, you also got the uh, housing bubble very right as well. Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's a wonderful place, steeped in tradition. There's a lot of really smart people, really good people. And it's really been a fantastic place. I've been there almost 16 years. It's been a a fantastic place to learn and grow over that over that time period. And certainly working with Jeremy and Ben all these years has been fantastic as well. Yeah. And, you know, actually, right before this interview, I was looking at uh, one of my old friend, Barry Ritholtz's uh, uh, commentaries, and he had you uh, for his masterclass uh, interview up at your offices in Boston. This was in 2018. The first thing that caught my eye was that, you know, Barry, as a lawyer, he was talking to you about the law and how, and, you know, actually I worked as a paralegal but, uh, way long ago and how you felt like it was just a, a miserable life and you moved into, uh, into the wonderful world of finance. Talk to me a little bit about that before we get into your views on what's happening today. Yeah, sure. So so I was toiling away as an attorney here in Boston. I was doing a lot of medical malpractice defense. So working for, you know, the Harvard hospitals or New England Medical Center hospitals. And it was really miserable because it, it's, it's definitely brass knuckle type litigation. And it's very emotional because, you know, people were either hurt or they, they you know, somebody had died and you're talking to their relatives. And so it was really a pretty miserable existence for a young associate that wasn't really someone who wanted to kind of get in there and fight all the time. And I ended up uh, being able to make a transition from the MedMal defense work to working at a broker dealer. So I worked at LPL Financial Services in their legal uh, legal office for a couple couple years. And I thought, oh, it's good. I'm going to move into finance. I was a finance undergrad major. And so it'll be a lot more staid. It'll be a lot less emotional. It'll be great. And what I realized is that people care uh, as much about their financial health as they do their health health. And so the emotions were, were definitely part of that as well. And then you also had to deal with responding to the government uh, and the go government um, subpoenas and, 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 and investigations. And so that was pretty miserable as well. And so my, my father-in-law uh, gave me a book and that book was uh, What Color Is Your Parachute? And, and he knew I was pretty miserable. And he said, hey, kid, you know, what he had learned when, you know, he was young is if you, if you, if you never work, if you enjoy what you're doing, you never work a day in your life. And so I was trying to figure out what I would enjoy doing. And so this book, What Color Is Your Parachute, got me to understand what I enjoyed doing was finance. And I also enjoyed communicating and talking to people. And so I was able to finagle a job at Putnam. Uh, right before the internet bubble popped, working in their their institutional sales team, and that was just uh, such a breath of fresh air versus the um, you know the legal world and the antagonism of the legal world. That it, it was just so fun that I could you know what I enjoyed doing, what I enjoyed reading about, was something that I could get paid for, and so that really was the transition. And I used to see people that I, you know, you would have cases against or practice with, and and they would say, I go, you know, where have you been? I said, oh, well, I've, I've changed careers. And and invariably, the response was some form of, oh, you got out, as, <laughs> as if you, as you've escaped from, from, from Stalag 13. 
Uh, and so it's really been a, a ton of fun ever since. Yeah, that is a great story, I have to say. And, uh, you know, the interesting bit about your conversation with Barry Ridholtz, I noticed that it was from 2018. Uh, that was the date. And immediately I thought to what's actually happening in the markets, because you and I, we spoke a month ago in preparation for this, but uh, there's been a long lead time between when we spoke and now. And the markets today, uh, a month later, look a lot more like the markets of early 2018 than they do uh, than they did a month ago. So I want to talk to you about, um, to a certain degree, about what I spoke to Ben about, but then deep dive into asset allocation. But I want to talk to you as well about what's actually happening in the markets uh, today. Uh, let me preface it by saying, so you know, when I spoke to Ben, we were talking about the 60-40 portfolio. And basically, when we were thinking about bonds, we were thinking about bonds being able to protect you uh, against drawdowns and equities. We were thinking about bonds as providing you income. And we were thinking about bonds uh, in, in a worst case scenario in terms of their inflation protection or uh, inflation hurting bonds. Those are the three categories that I'm most interested in. And originally, I wanted to focus on the first two, but now it seems like the third, that inflation part, the, the negative uh, impact on bonds is the, is the part that people are thinking about right now. So how are you and uh, GMO thinking about inflation and bonds actually increasing in yield right now? Yeah, you know, um, it seems as though the world has awoken to the fact that there is a potential risk of inflation out there that maybe 70 basis points on a 10-year didn't really reflect some of that downside risk associated with inflation. I do think that we have a bit of skepticism with respect to kind of uh, a full-throated return of inflation similar to what we saw in the 1970s, which is what everybody's concern was, right? You know, you had inflation you know, averaging six or seven percent during that decade. You had a couple of years where inflation was at 11 percent. That inflation had seeped into wages. You had this wage price price spiral. And it was really it was a pretty miserable decade for stocks and bonds. And so today, the likelihood of that wage price spiral being triggered, which is really what you need given costs, wages are 70% of the corporate cost structure, you know, you really need inflation to seep into wages in order to uh, in order to have that type of outcome. And I think we're skeptical, particularly, you know, we're still 9 million jobs short of where we were pre-pandemic, that that likelihood is something that is, is on the offing. But you can get these cyclical bouts of inflation that can be pretty painful at times, right? If you're used to a inflationary environment of one to two percent, and all of a sudden inflation is three to four percent, you know that's going to feel uh, pretty uh, dramatically worse than than it would if you were used to that higher higher inflation environment. The, the, and so I think that's kind of the the shorter term concerns with respect to inflation. What I think we worry about more from an intermediate to longer term concern with respect to inflation is the risk of a policy mistake. So you have um, a lot of stimulus coming into the pipeline again this year um, and, and the growth of MMT as an economic philosophy and an excuse for uh, governors, government writ large to spend more money. And, and we know that if you're elected official, spending money is a lot more fun than taking, taking funds away. And so we do worry that you have uh, a mistake with respect to the timing of that fiscal policy when the economy is likely running at close to full potential and that, that, that fiscal stimulus continues. And that is that potentially has the the risk of being much more inflationary than some of these cyclical bouts that we that we may be seeing right now. Right, and you know, I think uh, two things on that. Uh, one, let's we can go back to 
that that environment, what does that mean for equities as well as for bonds? But I, I want to come back to that. But I want to ask a question about Walmart in particular and, you know, cost push inflation or whatever we, we they used to call it in the 70s, because they came out with this whole thing saying we're going to take 425,000 workers and we're going to pay them more. The Biden administration, they've come out with this deal where they want to push for 15 percent uh, minimum wage, which is a lot higher than their current minimum wage. Isn't that potentially uh, the impetus that you could get for uh, cost push inflation where, you know, you see this whole inflation going into wages. Do you think that that is a potential uh, place where your skepticism would start to wane? I think that's that's certainly a potential. You know, the ultimate question there is what happens to profit margins. So you know, how much of that that wage pressure gets gets pushed pushed on? Um, I mean, there there is an aspect of that that I would say hallelujah, in that you know real wages for the past forty or fifty years in the United States haven't moved, and that has been really the source of this increasing income inequality, which really has long term pernicious impacts on the overall on the overall economy. But I, you know, I think it's going to take a little bit more. You're going to start to need to see that on a much more broad based scale. Versus, um, versus you know a handful, even Walmart, which is a pretty big company, and 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 you know you're you're going to need to see that on a much broader base scale in order to really worry about that uh, that cost push inflation. Right, and, and now let's say that this environment of not cost push, but rather where we have on the one hand uh, cyclical bouts of inflation, but relatively moderate inflation, but inflation that on average is slightly higher than it had been before. What kind of environment is that for investing, both in terms of bonds and equities, potentially in a 60-40 portfolio? Well, it, it feels like that's the type of environment where you're going to see a, a larger risk premium, both on the equity and the bond side. And so one thing that we know investors don't like is uncertainty. And so if you have uncertainty with respect to the economy or uncertainty with respect to inflation, you know, that is going to input impact PE multiples, that's going to impact uh, a real bond yields and what investors are going to demand. And so that type of environment seems to be quite different from the environment that we've experienced over, you know, certainly last five to seven years, save a little bit of 2000, uh, 2020. And, and that environment, and you would expect to see your PE, your PEs contract within the equity market. That that bond yields in that type of environment uh, should be increasing, whether or not they stop at 135 or 150 or get back to something like two or three, like we had a couple of years ago. Uh, it's it just it's a function of of how violent violent the move is. But it certainly would argue for a resetting in the tone of risk, certainly versus what we've seen more recently particularly with respect to equity. And, you know, interestingly, uh, it, that sort of dovetails with uh, something that you told me when we spoke a month ago, and you were talking about uh, some forecasting that you did. You know, there's the uh, the so-called hell forecast, and then there's the uh, the purgatory forecast. And, you know, in the in the health forecast, I'm just looking at this, uh, This you had secular stagnation, which is, uh, um, which you can talk to. And then I'm looking at my notes saying that the purgatory forecast had the equity risk premium falling uh, to four and a half percent real instead of 6%. Talk to me about uh, how you guys, your your the method to your madness at GMO in terms of forecasting, uh, in terms of longer term, uh, asset allocation thinking. Yeah. So, you know, we've been doing asset allocation actually, actually started back in 1987 at GMO. And the, the seven-year asset class forecasts have been the, the primary input to that, fork, that that asset allocation framework, you know, going back, um, the forecast formally started back in 1994. And the assumptions to the forecast are pretty simple. They had assumed that whatever valuation you're trading at, whatever PEs and margins are today, they're going to mean revert to what we call normal levels through time. And a normal level is really, um, is really a function of history, as well as uh, our judgment as to whether or not something has changed. And we recognize that things change pretty slowly when you're talking about things like PEs 
and margins. The equilibrium rates are pretty are pretty static through time, although they do change. And part of the risk management is trying to understand, you know, where it may be different, where it may be different this time. And so in that risk management framework, the idea of like, well, what happens if your discount rates are going to be suppressed for long enough that 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 changes the equilibrium valuation that investors are willing to pay to own certain assets. And so that that was originally dubbed a, a hell scenario because that means your longer term equilibrium returns for stocks and bonds are falling and your ability to generate five real without leverage, it really goes out the window. And so everybody's asset allocation kind of blows up at that standpoint. So you're, you're endowment trying to make five real, you're trying to make five real for retirement, you just can't get there from here. So we came up with this alternative scenarios. At, and, and so we've kind of we called it hell at the time. We've we remarketed as partial mean reversion, which hopefully is is a bit more intuitive. But instead of stocks mean reverting to a 16 PE, they're going to mean revert to a 20 PE. And instead of bond yields going back to 4.8 on a nominal 10 year in the U.S., they're going to go back to something like 3.6 on a nominal 10 year. That's equilibrium. And and the basis here is that that real cash yields are going to be zero. So your equity risk premium and your, your bond risk premium all reset lower because there's the risk-free rate in real terms is going to be zero going forward. And so that was very much a, or is very much a secular stagnation type argument. And it allowed us to think about the trade-offs between the two scenarios. Uh, it allowed us to address a lot of client concerns about the impact of the low rates. And we felt like it gave us a better guide in assessing returns over our seven-year horizon, which is our prediction period. And so we, you know, there was no, there's no quantitative way to, to balance those. There's no model that you can use to optimize in order to get the right weighting. And so we started with a one-thirds partial mean reversion, two-thirds normal mean reversion scenario. And that, by the way, what was a pretty big concession for us. Like if, if there was a mean reversion society, you know, we would have been card carrying kind of founding members, if you were. But we did recognize that that something might be different here. And then a couple of years ago, we did uh, we did reduce the those odds to 50-50, given, uh, given what we were seeing in productivity and de demographic, demographic growth. And so we've kind of been at that weight for you know probably the past couple of years in terms of balancing those two those two competing scenarios right very interesting and uh, what in terms of the 60 40 portfolio let's go macro here what does that mean uh in terms of the death of 60 40 and I'll, I'll preface uh my question or your answer by saying that what we saw in the drawdown in march of 2020 is is that 60 40 didn't really work at that particular juncture. Great that we're 75% up on the S&P since that time. However, if drawdowns of 30% remain for an extended period of time, what we saw back then was actually uh, with rates as low as they are, they didn't provide very much cushion against that, that drawdown from the equity side of the portfolio. So 60-40 is difficult in 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 that circumstance. Yeah, it, it just doesn't um, it just doesn't give you the cushion that it once did. You know, bonds have been a fantastic disinflationary deflationary hedge over the past four or five crises, and so we saw bonds did you know they acted admirably in the U.S. in March of last year. And so actually, a, a U.S. based sixty forty investor with which has a its in its duration from U.S. rates actually fared much better than if you were a European or a Swiss investor, where actually rates went up in March. So, so you lost on your equities and your and your bonds, and so it does cause you to rethink. You know what is sixty forty for the next generation, and now we have had bond yields come back somewhat. So, so there is a little bit more cushion than there was, but certainly not the cushion that we had the luxury. Of having bond rates at you know ten-year rates at five percent heading into the global into the global financial crisis, and so well, the way we thought about this was, um, you know, you can lower your duration, and you can do that in a multitude of ways in a sixty forty portfolio. Um, but what we have really 
been unable to do is to find that magic asset that is going to have a positive expected return and a negative correlation to equities like bonds have have provided. That that in you know outside of high grade government bonds, you know that uh, that combination positive expected return and a negative correlation is, is really hard to come by because everybody and their brother is going to want to get a hold of that if if they can find it because it provides such a wonderful role with respect to diversification. And I think that's the question we've asked ourselves over the past year or so uh, with respect to high-grade government bonds. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Yeah, and uh, you know, I was I'm looking uh, and thinking back to your two Q uh, report, and there were three specific asset classes that you were talking about as um, potential replacements, in part for government bonds. And maybe we can talk through some of those: high yields, one, uh, emerging markets is a second, and then asset backed. Uh, securities, all three of which are to a degree replacing income that you lost in your portfolio uh, through the suppression of rates. Yeah. So, so I mean, we were offered some interesting opportunities in March of last year to uh, not own nominal duration, but to go out the credit, the credit curve. And so as we saw spreads in the high yield kind of go through 1,000, 1,100 basis points, they were discounting pretty bad scenarios with respect to defaults. Uh, We were able to allocate to high yield. We thought that was an attractive trade. Um, Emerging debt spreads likewise had had widened. And we thought that those two areas of credit looked, looked very interesting at the time. Now, unfortunately, we've had um, certainly, starting with the, the Fed bazooka or whatever they called it back in April, where they announced that they were going to be buying bonds and buying high yield, we've seen spreads come in back to levels that, frankly, we don't think are that attractive anymore. Although, interestingly, in, in the distressed space, we are still seeing some opportunities, particularly in COVID-related sectors and, and stressed performing credit. So, so higher grade companies that are, are being priced as if uh, they're going to be impaired in some ways. And so actually on the distress side, uh, a- apart from traditional bankruptcies, we're actually seeing some interesting, uh, interesting opportunities there. But credit spreads have come in pretty meaningfully. And so we haven't exited all of those positions, but there's just less opportunity there now given where, where spreads are. Asset backs are the other area that we do think is, is quite attractive and very interesting to us. And oftentimes when investors think of uh, floating rate credit, they, they gravitate towards bank loans. And being a credit guy, Ed, I'm sure certainly you can appreciate the uh, what has happened in the bank loan market over the past four or five years with the return of CubLite and the lending standards being deteriorated the resulting recovery rates coming down, the uh, the liquidity of that asset class, uh, we just don't think that there's that's a great source of return, and 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 it still to us is is a source of worry, even though you do have the Fed threatening to come in and buy bonds, but just so much of that market used to be dominated really by insurance companies were up buy and hold, and now they're really dominated by the mutual funds and the ETFs, and that can exacerbate the price movements. But on the asset back side, you know, a lot of people still think of asset backs and think of subprime and and have you know cast aside that asset class. But it's a pretty mature asset class because you're dealing with some structures that have been around for you know five, 10, 10 years. There's more durability to the asset class that it's less uh, it's less impacted by macro events. And it's really more about your security selection within uh, within the asset class. And so whether that's RMBS, uh, some aspects of CMBS, which is, you know, the lower quality end there can be troublesome, certainly given um, COVID and, and, and what companies are going to do in terms of returning to work, but also student loans, autos, credit cards. Uh, um, there's a lot of interesting uh, CLOs. There's a lot of interesting 
areas within the asset-backed market. And it feels like a, a kind of forgotten, unloved asset class. And we think if you're going to get credit exposure and you're worried about the duration associated with credit, that asset backs are really a good place to be. Yeah, uh, the the biggest uh, interesting bit that you had in there was about the uh, the loan market because I, you know, basically we're talking about four different markets, or you can say three if you uh, put uh, high yield and leveraged loans or loans in general together. I I've been recycling uh, Chuck Prince's uh, commentary from 2007 recently. You know where he said, you know, as long as we, um, you know, as long as the music's playing, we got to dance, and we're still dancing. He got pilloried for this. This is the CEO of Citibank back in yeah. 2007, and what came out subsequently in hearings. Uh, before Congress is that he was talking about the leveraged loan market. And what he was saying was, we have to participate in the leveraged loan market uh, in order to, if we want to participate at all, we've got to go in full because if we don't, then we, we, you know, we can't participate in that market. We can't be a player. And it's up to government to regulate that market to stop these ridiculous deals from happening and it seems to me like that's exactly where we are again in 2021. Yeah, and, and then some. And you know, there was a the, one of the Fed policy committees. The staff actually had a, a report in January talking about the concerns that they had, and they they they, they signaled out leverage loans. Uh, but you, you know, the, the debt levels and the in, the financial instability that underlies all this, you know, those risks have increased, and they they talked about that risk. I've heard Kaplan from the Dallas Fed talk about those risks being increased, but it's, you know, generally speaking, everything's fine. And, and that's definitely not the narrative that you're seeing in markets, but the risk of those underlying risks have only accentuated in the past year. Right. And, you know, what are the kryptonites for those particular four asset markets that we're talking about? We're talking about high yield, leveraged loans, emerging markets, and we're talking about asset-backed securities. Well, I mean, one piece of kryptonite that that you talked about recently is like, what happens if, if these uh, variants of COVID come back with a vengeance, come back more quickly than we can vaccinate, or are are less resistant to, or they're they're more resistant to the vaccine vaccination, and so that slowing of the economy is really the thing that can undo all this because. Now, you still have to stay, well, maybe if you're doing pick toggle loans, you don't have to stay current. You can just issue more debt. But generally, you have to repay some of this at some point. And so the economy slowing down, I think, is the thing that is really, you know, is the real risk for that. Right. Um, I, I want to get back to uh, this concept of duration, because I'm thinking about growth companies. You know, a, I, I think uh, I was talking to uh, to uh, Ben Kadner, or, or sorry, to uh, Ben Inker about this, Matt. And uh, <laughs> putting you guys together, um, and we, we were talking about duration. I think um, the thesis I had back then was talking about growth stocks as a long duration play. The, the way that he was talking about, it, he said, "Wait a minute, you know, let's go through the psychology of why you're buying into these uh, these areas of the market." And ultimately, he came out saying that it's not because of duration that you're buying into them, uh, and that's a fair point. And it goes to whether or not there's froth in those markets, in equities. But at the same time, when we look at interest rates going up, which is what's happening now because of the reflation, there is a sense in which these are actually long-lived assets. These are duration assets. Uh, the fangs, uh, but not just the fangs, companies like Tesla, Nikola, any of these companies where the cash flows are 5, 10, 20 years into the future, what happens in a world of this, uh, you know, slightly higher inflation, higher real yields, punctuated by bouts of inflation? How do those companies perform, and what does that mean for indices uh, around the world, and particularly in the United States? Well, if if the narrative is that these companies benefited as rates go down, then then the narrative should be that they get hurt as the rates will go up. Now, I'm sure that that is a bearish narrative. So therefore, there's going to be a lot of eloquent explanations as to why that is not true. But uh, you know, I, I don't think that a, a lot of people think about these assets as really being long duration assets. Um, in that, you know, if you're paying 
you know, 200 times forward earnings for a stock that, um, man, you have to have a very high level of growth for a very long level, very long time in order to justify those levels of valuation. It is possible, but we know that those next great companies are, uh, you know, there's lots of next great companies, but how many great companies actually come through that? We know that they are very few and very far between. And you also have to investigate if, if you do think that Tesla is going to be selling, you know, X number of car, X number of millions of cars in order to justify that level of uh, that level of valuation. You know, one of the things is, right, where are they going to get the raw materials to do all this? You know, we, we you know, we have a resources strategy and the portfolio manager for the resource strategy talked about, well, they're going to need, need multiples of the nickel and lithium that is produced on an annual basis in order to meet those projections. Where is that, where is that going to come from? And so, um, you know, for high quality stocks that have long histories of long histories of being profitable, making good capital allocation decisions, I think that that duration argument, you know, may make sense. But for what we're seeing in the market right now, software companies valued at 44 times sales. Is there's just the likelihood of that level of growth is is just so low that it really would be different this time that you would be able to justify a lot of the valuations that you're seeing in aspects of, of growth, not all parts of growth, but certainly aspects of growth. Right. So, I mean, if I could take what you're saying, uh, you're uh, uh, bifurcating or trifurcating, if you will, the world <laughs> into uh, three buckets. There's one, the uh, is everything a bubble answer? Yes, there are some areas of, this, of the market where there is, uh, you know, froth that's excessive that will come out, come undone. Then there are other companies which have stable and, and, and good cash flows now and likely will have them into the future, which could benefit from uh, lower interest rates. And then there's a third part of the uh, uh, that uh, that are non-growth value equities, you know, that uh, have good metrics in terms of both cheapness and duration. And those are three separate universes. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah, and I I feel like that last universe is the universe that has I mean, it's disappointed for so long. It's quite reasonable to question what what is going on there. And and we have interrogated value pretty significantly over the last several years. And a couple other, you know, some of the other kind of value managers out there have done similar things and they've come up to similar conclusions in that we don't think that value is broken. Things are different though. You know, growth is staying growthier longer than it has. Stocks are maintaining their their growth uh, characteristics uh, on average about a year longer than they would normally. That's different. Uh, that's materially different than what we certainly saw in 99, 2000. But the fundamentals within value, and we can talk about how you define value, but the fundamentals within value, you know, value's growth is about the same as it has always been. And, and so the, the more than 100% of its underperformance has come from the asset class getting cheaper. And that piece, that the, the, the undergrowth of value, value, is value because it grows less than the market. That the fact that that is normal is is really an enormous. Uh, it's an enormous piece of piece of, of the puzzle because if the growth for value would be less than what we've seen historically, then well, then it should deserve to trade at a wider discount. But we're not seeing that. So we, you know, the the, the term we've used is value is bruised, but it's not. But it's not broken. And so. You know, whenever you have these excesses, there, there are other areas of the market where there are opportunities. And we think that value uh, globally and across sectors is really attractively priced, you know, well into the top decile of, of, of you know, any which way that we can we can measure it. You know, uh, let me uh, attack that uh, that problem uh, from a mean reversion perspective, because I know that uh, you were talking about being card carrying members of the mean reversion club. 
um, that uh, maybe what's happening is twofold. Uh, one is when you look at intangibles on uh, balance sheets in terms of profit margins, that these growth companies, uh, they have a huge amount of intangibles and therefore their profit margins are higher. And therefore, when you think about mean reversion, to uh, we're looking at mean reversion to higher profit margins for that reason alone. But then there's secondarily what I talked to Ben about, which is this industry concentration as well. So there again, you potentially could mean revert to higher levels of profit, particularly in these growth areas where there are economies of scale, but not only that, there are network effects as well. And as a result, people are willing to pay more because they think that they can sustain these profit margins uh, that are higher for longer than, than value companies. Yeah, I mean, there's a ton to unpack right there. Uh, but I'll start with one of Jeremy's quotes. Uh, he talked about when I joined GMO back in 04, you know, the mantra was that profit margins were the most mean reverting series in finance. And, and so that was what we talked about for a number of years. And then we saw profit margins high prior to the GFC. The GFC fixed that, but then the profit margins came, came right back. And so one of the things that we've done over the past several years is, is look at the concentration within industries, the oligopolies, the monopolies, and their impact on profit margins for the system as a whole. And it certainly appears from the data as well as just kind of anecdotally, as you look around the world, that these oligopolies are more profitable, that they, they haven't had the government intervention or government regulation like you might expect. And so therefore, the system as a whole can run at a higher profit margin relative to what we would have thought through history. And so I think that's true. We try and incorporate that into our forecasting methodology. That, however, doesn't take the profit margins you know, from six to seven uh, in order to justify the current move, so it, it's it ex, it's it's partially explanatory, but not but not completely explanatory. The second part of your question is you know with respect to book value, and and we've had concerns book values for my entire career at GMO. When I got there in 04, we had something called book proxy, which was basically kind of rebuilding book by adding retained earnings through the years. And so we didn't really use traditional book. Um, we used this book proxy. And we used that for a number of years until all of the buybacks ended up distorting that measurement as well. And then over the past several years, we had another effort where we wanted to take into account the changing nature of uh, a lot of these companies and 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 basically reflecting the fact that gap standards haven't kept up with the uh, the intangibles and the investment-like companies. And so we have rebuilt, uh, we would basically take R&D and advertising off the income statement, recapitalize it onto the balance sheet, depreciate that through time, and then run it back through the income statement. We'll make some other adjustments for inflation and LIFO, FIFO. But we think that that gives a much better assessment for book value than using that tradition, those traditional metri metrics, which have gotten skewed because of intangibles as well as well as buybacks, and you can almost make sense of the world in, under this under this 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 framework. Uh, this framework allows you to understand a company like Amazon, mm -hmm. where its PE is nominally 100 or 200, whatever it is, but you know that that company is a lot more profitable than what that that nominal PE would suggest because they'd be able to invest a ton and not take on debt. And so, so we, we don't have a ton of sympathy for traditional book value and some of the traditional value industries because we feel like they really rely on some flawed metrics that we worked pretty hard to try and, and address. You know, when you talk about book value, uh, we can go back to this whole um, value versus growth uh, dichotomy. And I want to think about uh, energy and financials in particular, because those are two places where those metrics, the book value metrics actually still hold to a certain degree. Maybe you can talk to me about this dichotomy between uh, growth and value, where you're saying that value is actually, there's an opportunity there, particularly right now, 
during this whole reflation trade thing, those are two sectors that are doing well. Yeah, they've, um, you know, again, they've been kind of left left for dead, so to speak. And so, you know, we think that that value, uh, energy and financials are cheap. Financials have the um, the benefit of, of being less levered than they have in the past. And so they can withstand more. And we've also seen, you know, energy stocks really being, you know, energy in the long term, as Jeremy's talked about, has some pretty big challenges to overcome. But unfortunately, we're not going to be able to wean ourselves wean ourselves off um, uh, petrochemicals and 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 carbon related uh, sources of energy in in the short run. And so there are some very cheap stocks, and particularly as the economy gets back going again, um, we think that those are two interesting areas that you can make a fair amount of money. But one of the things that we're most excited about with respect to value is that its cheapness is across the board. So, so we don't have to rely solely on fins or energy in order to generate returns. We can look at value relative to growth across all of those sectors, and value is value is cheap across the board. And when you say value, it goes back to the question you said. Let's, uh, what, how do we define value? Yeah, let's answer that question now. When you think about value versus growth, how are you defining value? So, I mean, you can you can define it a bunch of different ways. So, you can define it the traditional way with respect to book value, uh, but you can also do a multi-sec, you know, um, price rate, multi-price ratios, uh, or the economic book, right? the, 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 making those adjustments for book. Uh, value is cheap on all of those, all of those metrics. Um, we, you can also, and you can, you can sector neutralize it. You can, you can do large cap, you can do small cap, you can make adjustments for industries that are more concentrated. You can adjust uh, for, um, uh, uh, less concentrated industries, and and no matter which way you slice and dice it, value is uh, is still incredibly cheap to what we've seen in history, and so uh, um, we have skepticism that you can wring as much return out of traditional book as when you make some of these adjustments, but um, you do have the benefit of having a longer series of data, and values trading, you know, at a 59% discount to where it trades historically. And, and that's that's pretty why. Right. You know, uh, two takeaways that I have from this interview are that 60-40 is not necessarily going to hold you in good stead. And there are other alternatives to that. There are other asset classes to think about. And that, you know, when you think about value versus growth, that there are opportunities from an asset allocation perspective in uh, in value. One area that we haven't talked about here is the public versus the private market uh, question uh, in terms of thinking about how you reform your asset allocation. We're, I'm thinking principally about private equity and private markets. Uh, how are you guys thinking about uh, the private markets versus the public markets? Yeah, so we are um, we are public market investors. And so we uh, our, our dilettantes with respect to, to private uh, private markets, but we do have what Jeremy calls the amateur's advantage is that we can take, a, you know, look on the outside into that asset class to think about the sources for the sources for return. And as 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 we've met institutional clients over the past, you know, 10 years, one of the things that we've been really impressed by and and you know, I've seen firsthand is the number of in the past five, five to 10 years, a number of institutions that historically have not invested in private equity, moving into private equity as a panacea in terms of in terms of returns. And so now you have kind of, depending upon how you define it, one and a half to two trillion dollars of assets in private equity that are out there chasing deals. And so private equity uh, arguably has delivered 400 basis points over public equity historically, but a lot of that sources of return occurred when you didn't have this massive amount of money in private equity chasing deals. And so what have you seen? You've seen the multiple that deals are, 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 are taking place at increase. You're seeing the leverage levels increase in order to generate returns. You're seeing more and more 
retail investors moving into private equity. They're trying to get it into 401k plans. And so that all has the impact of limiting your returns. And, and even pretty sophisticated institutions, like you have to quiz them pretty hard in order for them to make the assumption that, yes, there's probably less return in private equity than we've seen historically. And sorry, going on a bit. The other thing is that private equity, the, the, the range of returns based on what manager you invest in is enormous. So skill in accessing and investing in the right private equity managers is enormously important relative to your, uh, your potential outcome. And you know this is not Lake Wobegon. We can't all be above average in that uh, in that uh, in that exercise. So 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 we do have um, so we do have some skepticism for private equity. Not that it's all bad and that it's going to end in a flaming disaster, but you really need to make some questions with respect to the assumptions that you're making in terms of the returns, as well as your ability to access those top level managers that really. Um, probably provide more skepticism with respect to private equity than than what I think you would see uh, normally. Right. You know, actually, interestingly enough, as you were saying that, it immediately made me think about, uh, the, you know, the faded uh, uh, lockdown, you know, mutant variant lockdown scenario. And the reason I'll tell you is this, because I was thinking to myself as we were going through the different asset classes before uh, about what happens in those lockdown scenarios to spreads. Uh, and also to liquidity, because what we've seen thus far, uh, while interest rates have been going up since the beginning of the year, is that spreads actually haven't really been going up. Liquidity is still relatively uh, there for the uh, the companies that are issuing this debt, both in high yield leveraged loans and potentially also these LBO operations. What happens, do you think, What in sort of a more pernicious scenario, uh, it, both in terms of liquidity and also in terms of spreads? Are those concerns or am I being excessively worried? No, I mean, I, I think the market has clearly uh, or reasonably clearly made the assessment that things by summertime is going to be back to normal. And, and if the, you know, it, Repricing comes when when things change at the margin. And so so if that gets repriced from this summer to this fall to, you know, Dr. Fauci was on the TV this weekend saying everybody's going to be need to be wearing a mask in 2022. If if, if that narrative starts to 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 seep into uh, into the domain, well, then risk assets are going to be repriced. Now, you probably won't see high yield at eleven hundred. But certainly for the spreads that we see today, they're discounting a pretty pretty optimistic scenario. And, you know, it seems like everybody's tripping over themselves at this point to raise their GDP estimates for the year for the year as well. And so it does feel as though that the the mutant uh, variant, which sounds awful, um, (laughs) uh, uh, that that, you know, that scenario is really being discounted. And and, but if but if you know, things change at the margin. If if, if that's really not a, a summer thing, uh, it's if it's really in the fall where that herd immunity is is coming to or into 2022, then there's there's some air pockets between here and there. Right, definitely. Uh, the last thing that we haven't talked about this whole time is precious metals. Uh, I'm not even going to go into uh, um, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. I don't want your inaugural you. time you. on Real Vision to be, uh, you know, does this guy think? What does he think about Bitcoin? Um, but I want to I want to talk to you about gold. And one of the reasons is because I know that in your piece uh, in two Q of twenty twenty, you talked about gold. Where do you see gold as an asset class? Yeah, so gold is something that we've really struggled with through the years, and and we had um, Jim Grant from Grant's Interest Rate Observer into the office years ago, and I asked him how how do you value gold. And he responded as only Jim can. He said, gold is the value investor's indulgence. And and he did a very nice job of sidestepping how you would put a valuation on on gold. And and what I've heard Jeremy and Ben say for years is, I'll buy gold when it yields the same thing as a T-bill. And I think Buffett said something like that as well. And so actually in 08, 
uh, Jeremy was walking by and I called him into my office and, and I, you know, I had the Bloomberg screen DTMM and I showed him the yields and, and gold was yielding more than a T-bill as, as, as the T-bill rates went negative. And so we did buy some gold in one of our hedge funds at the time. And we actually made a lot of money and we realized we made a lot of money. We didn't quite know what to do. And so we ended up selling out of it. So, so we've really struggled to build a frame valuation framework for owning gold, but the, the but but there is a, another way to think about it in terms of opportunity costs, and 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 we got this from Inigo Fraser Jenkins at Alliance Bernstein, and he talks about the opportunity cost of gold. You know, gold has delivered, uh, has maintained its purchasing power through several thousand years, which is really quite the feat if you think about an asset that doesn't yield anything. And so, if you can think about if you assume gold can, is going to deliver zero real, and you can think about that relative to um, relative to uh, negative real yielding fixed income assets, you can see gold as having a home in, in a portfolio, and so that becomes a little bit more of an opportunity cost discussion relative to relative to the negative real yielding bonds. We've kind of gone a step further where we have allocated more to liquid alternatives. Uh, over the past several years in lieu of owning bonds and gold because we believe we can generate a positive real return through through liquid alts. I'm just thinking to myself, what what have we missed? If I could uh, have you wrap it up in terms of your overall thesis, what you want to get across to uh, viewers, what would you say? I guess ultimately, you know, in, in terms of our portfolios, we've uh, there's value in lowering the duration of your portfolio. And you can do that a bunch of different ways. And you can do that actually in ways that increase your return and lower your risk. And so specifically on the equity side, tilting more towards value. Um, we actually have a, a long value short growth strategy where we think the returns are potentially asymmetric because value can only get so cheap. And we think growth has uh, aspects of growth have a, a long way to fall. But also on the fixed income side, you know, decreasing your allocation to nominal duration, even though you know that that duration has increased. Uh, um, those yields have increased, so th there's more opportunity now than there was back in in March, where you're really, you really know, yields just got so low. But there are other segments from the fixed income market that we think have some opportunity in it as well, whether that be asset backs or allocation allocating liquid alts, which are really. Um, you know, an asset class that has not delivered over the past several years. But there are things you can do. You just have to be comfortable with the fact that they haven't performed well, and therefore the opportunity set is is better. Excellent, Matt. I, I really appreciate your taking the time to talk to us. I think we made it to almost an hour. Uh, you know, in the middle, my my power went out, but uh, you know, it, it's been a pleasure, and uh, I hope to have another conversation with you on Real Vision again soon. Thanks, Ed. Really appreciate the opportunity. Welcome to the end of the video. We know that on average, 85% of you who start a video on Real Vision finish it. That's extraordinary. On Facebook, it would just be 4%. And that's because Real Vision creates the most engaging content in the entire media world. Let us help you grow your business by making video content that really engages your customers. Email us at customvideo at realvision.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.